Angelina's giving me a thumbs up. <laughs> John, welcome back to the show, man. Thank you so much for having it's me back. Have you back in the show. I know it's a holiday weekend right now. Everything's we're a week away from, I guess, the holiday break. Do you get a break? Do I get a break? Yeah, I, I take some day. I take some time off. I'm assuming most people worry about their finances mostly around the holiday break. Usually, it's after you get the credit card bill. Well, that's what in I mean. January, they're worrying about it, yeah. and then they said, "I got to do something about this now." And it's all reactive at that point. With yeah, that's not how it should be, right? You should always be proactive. Exactly. <laughs> so we, we we have you back in the studio, which is great. Thank you. Welcome back. Yeah, and, great. And I'm happy to be gonna, back. We're going to talk more. We're going to get to more ideas that we can share. And, and I know the last show that we did, it, it stirred up a little bit in the construction industry. A lot of people were, I didn't even know about any of this stuff. I didn't even know if this was the case or what's the story. And I think it's just turn a blind eye, that kind of mentality where I don't know. So I don't really want to inquire about it. So I, I, I'm doing okay. So I should leave it at that. Yeah. But there's always opportunity to be doing better. Absolutely. And I, I had a lot of your viewers actually reach out to me nice. and, and say, hey, listen, I heard you on Manny's show. I like to learn more about this. And anybody who's listening can easily find me on Instagram or on TikTok or go into my YouTube. And you can actually book a 30-minute free consultation if there's anything that you want to discuss. Quick shout out before we get started. Uh, I'm wearing... Mike's shirt, Integra Bell, uh, doing good work out in Burlington, Oakville, Hamilton area. And then also I got Stefano's uh, cap. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for the cap and for the tea. Unleash your voice on the Construction Life podcast community. Are you passionate about the world of construction, trades, and all things building related? The Construction Life podcast wants to hear from you. Leave us a review, share your thoughts, insights, and experiences on your favorite podcast channel. Your review fuels our mission to create engaging and informative content for the construction community. Your feedback is a mortar that holds our podcast together. So share your thoughts, rate us, and let the construction community know why the Construction Life is your go-to podcast. Visit our website and check out the over 400 tradespeople and construction professionals listed on our site. Check out www.theconstructionlife.com for additional content, behind-the-scenes exclusives, and valuable resources. Dive deeper into the construction world with articles, guest profiles, and more. Follow us on social at TCL underscore The Construction Life. Subscribe to our video channels on YouTube and Rumble. Check out our link tree and find exclusive discounts for listeners. The link is in the IG bio. Join the conversation on Facebook, the Construction Life community. And now over to you, John. Don't you get, I mean, I get the same question. Don't you get busy that all of a sudden, it's great that you're sharing this information and people, you're sharing an opportunity for people to get a hold of a person like you to talk about what's really important in their life. Is it going to get to the point where it's going to be a little overwhelming at that point? Like, I don't understand. Yeah. Um, so I'm working with another coach um, on the marketing side and his advice to me was, you're going to have to get a screener or a appointment setter and, and you're going to have to go through them the and, and, fil and filter it yeah. if they want to talk to you. Or I just, I just hired a junior because I am that busy. I just, I just hired a junior to help with some of the lower cases. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to say that no one's like, everybody's important to me. Yeah. Um, it's some of the people that are maybe just starting out. I have a junior who I'm training and teaching. You'll still always have me, but I'm working on, on some of the more, more sophisticated cases i want to do this show i mean there's a lot of talking points that i sent you but i definitely want to do this show i want to start talking about construction where it's the insurances that we should be paying attention to yeah. because as much as we think we're cowboys and we're super men and women in the industry there is a possibility that we may get hurt 
we may get chronic pain. We may, like, we just might put ourselves in a physical or mental state that is going to affect our financial output, right? Oh, my God. You, you have, a, you have a, a, a four times, sorry, you have a 400% chance of becoming disabled by the time you reach age 65. And you have a 40%, Canadians have a 40% chance of being disabled for more than 90 days by the time they reach 50. From what career option? Construction in general? Construction. Or really, huh? Yeah, yeah, you're four times more likely to be disabled by the age of 65. And we see it. Or, we get, see or it. get a sickness, yeah. We see it with the yeah. older trades, and I've always said it on the show that this career, as, as amazing as it is, it's a perishable career. You need to physically understand what limits you have and what you're doing and what damage you might be causing down. And I mean, like, I want to get into, like, this. these insurances, like, you, you're also talking about hearing, sight, like, breathing. Like, there's all these other kind of chronic things that could happen to you as a result of your workforce. And I, I just, I want the people to be educated and figure out, I don't need to be a rock star. I don't need to be a superman or woman. I need to be careful when I'm on the job site. And we all need to be careful with our brothers and sisters that work on the job site. And if we see something that's not right, we should speak up. We should not be afraid to speak up and saying, listen, put on a mask, put on a harness, put on a lid, put on, just put it on. Simple as that, because the majority of people don't. They don't think that it's going to affect them later on, but it's going to affect them. And you're absolutely right. You can wear all the harnesses, the hard hats, the steel toe boots, have all the protection, but accidents do happen. That's why they're called accidents, right? We're all human. Yeah. There's mistakes that happen. And I say it, I say it by my clients. What is your greatest asset? They say, oh, it's my home. No, it's not your home. Your greatest asset is your ability to earn income. Yeah. If you're 30 years old and you're making $100,000 a year, you need to protect $3.5 million because you've got 35 years of work ahead of you mm. that you're going to earn 100 and possibly more. Mm. So at a minimum, your greatest asset is $3.5 million that you need to protect and that is in case you got injured. Because if you don't have the right insurances, if you get injured, how will you pay your mortgage, your rent, put food on the table for your family? Like all the basic necessities. So where do we begin, John? Like what is, because I know for a fact that the majority of the construction industry is not doing this. Like, like we know the stereotypes where it's like they're handling their own books, they're handling their own investing, they're handling, they're doing everything that they try to convince their clients not to do when it comes to hiring a person with skilled trades. They always tell them, don't hire a DIYer, don't listen to TV and all these rental shows, hire a professional, hire a professional. But yeah, when it comes to these personal line items, yeah. they don't hire anybody and they don't, maybe they don't know. Do they know? Or I'm, I'm just assuming that they probably don't know much. So then they just figure I'll take care of it myself. But they're missing opportunities here where they should be paying attention about the protection that they need. First of all, I would start off, you need to get disability insurance. And disability is a wage loss replacement program. Okay. Okay. So if you're an employer and you have employees, then you must provide WSIB. Yes. Workman's Compensation Board. Standard, law, okay? legal, yeah. You have to provide that. Here's the problem if you were cover, covered under, if you're an employee and you're covered under w, WSIB. If you got injured while water skiing, 
you're not covered. No. WSIB only covers when you are on the job site, when you are working. A wage loss replacement program or disability insurance with a private insurer covers you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. No matter where you are in the world? No matter where you are. No matter if you're doing something foolish? Mm. <laughs> if you went bungee jumping and, and the rope snapped, you know, they're going to look at the, you know, here's the, here's the one thing. When, you go, when I go through a questionnaire with someone, have you ever participated in parachutes, skydiving, motorized vehicle racing, that sort of stuff? Yeah. If you have participated or if you plan to, there's another questionnaire, and then they assess the risk based on that if you've answered yes. Okay. They'll still cover you, but the premiums will be higher. They'll pro they, yeah, they'll probably rate you. It, the premiums will be more because they have to compensate for the risk. Are there okay. different scales? I'm assuming there's probably different scales for different trades. I guess more trades that are a higher risk. So right now I'm talking about high rise roofers, things like that. Extreme kind yes. of, yeah, there's got to be a scale at that there's, point. There's definitely a scale. We, we rate it, we call it 1A, 2A, 3A, 4A. 4A would be like your professional, your executive. Uh, a 3A or 2A would be someone, you know, that is in the construction. It could be, uh, you could be a high rise builder, right? Okay. Uh, crane operator, that sort of thing. If you're a high-rise crane operator, you might be a 2A because it's more more high risk, right? Of course, yeah. So as you get rated up, the premiums come down. When I say being rated up, like three and four, four be executive. Like, you know, you're a, po a podcaster, right? I'm an executive. We would be like a 4A because what we do is not risky, right? It basically, if we got injured, we, you know, we're, we got slipped on, we slipped on some piece of ice and we fractured or broke our ankle or something, right? Been there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was a rib. Right? There you go. Uh, you know, you're, in, you're on vacation in Italy. You're in Florence and you're riding, you know, one of those horse carriage and the horse decides to take off and you got injured. Yeah. You're covered. WSIB is not going to cover you for no, that. No, it's not. Right? So everyone, but then they, what about that line drawn where they take an injury personally and it affects their work because they have the mindset, I'm, I'm okay, I'm going to still go to work now. And it just, now they're compounding that injury. So there, is there a gray area at that point where there's an investigation to figure out exactly what happened here? Like, did the work create more problems or did the original accident start the problems? Well, WSIB would launch more of an investigation than a private insurer will. Okay. If you say I'm on vacation or I was water skiing and I hit the dock. Yeah. Right? I, I broke my legs. Um, that's just, that's a simple accident, right? No one's, no one's planning on not letting the rope go in time and crashing into a dock. This is a simple accident. So the, and the way the insurance works is you can have, if you, uh, I always tell my clients, let's be proactive where we're not going to have really high premiums and the way we structure it. So I would structure it so that there's a 90 day, what's called elimination period. Okay. Because I always tell my clients, you should have 90 days of emergency savings saved up anyways. If your injury or your disability lasts longer than 90 days, that's when the insurance kicks in. I could set this up where there's a 30-day elimination period, but your premiums are going to be very high. Yeah. But if I set it up that your, premium, your, your disability would then kick in after 90 days, then the premiums come down. Then we can set, there's certain, there's certain ways to set this up. I could set this up with what's called regular occupation. Mm-hmm where the insurer can make you do any occupation 
if you are capable. So if you are, um, let's say, a crane operator, mm-hmm. and you can't do your job, but you can stand, and you can say, would you like fries with your order? They'll make that suggestion. They'll say, this, you, could, you can work. You go to work, and whatever the difference is, we're going to compensate you for that difference. So I say to my clients, if you want own occupation, then we select that. It's Obviously, it's going to cost a little bit more mm-hmm. because now the insurer cannot force you to go work at McDonald's, not saying McDonald's is a bad place, or they can't force you to go wash dishes or surf. You have to be able to do your own occupation, and that would be a crane operator. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I always say to my clients, let's select own occupation where you're not going to be forced to doing something else because they will make you go to work and do anything. So this is where you help them because this is just going to be a different language. When people start looking at this documentation, they're just like, they don't even know where to begin, let alone answer the right questions the it, right way. It's a concierge service. That's all. Yeah, have to be that way, right? Yeah. It's really critical at that point. And I guess how much does, I mean, it, you already alluded to some of it, but I guess lifestyle, when I say lifestyle, I mean drinking and smoking and you start getting into health it, that also factors in too, doesn't it? Absolutely. If you're a smoker, your premiums are going to be higher. Yeah. Right? Alcohol, no. I mean, if you're not right, alcoholic and you got to drink 10 beers a day, yeah, that's probably going diff- to affect. It's called lifestyle, right? <laughs> okay. But that's that's involving other organizations that might need some assistance, you know, with you. And that's Correct. That's story, yeah. But definitely smoking is going to increase your premiums. Okay. And then I guess... Um, Nothing else really after that. Like, I mean, when you start looking at it, that's you're guiding them along the path of how to answer these questions correctly. And then they'll come back at you with a premium at that point. Right. And that premium changes over time with age. Uh, no. So, so when we, when we take a policy, um, there's a couple of things that I would do. I would ask for, let's, let's select a rider called guaranteed insurability, future, future insurability, because let's say you get a raise. I don't want to insure you, let's say for, yeah. it's usually anywhere between 65 to 80% of your monthly premium or your monthly income. And no insurer is going to give you 100% because then people are motivated to stay home. If they give you 60%, that's motivation for you to get back to work as fast as possible. And that is always their motivation to get you off the insurance and get you back to work. Yeah. Right? So the couple of things I would do, I would, I would always do a rider called the guaranteed insurability rider. So if in future you went from a hundred thousand to 120,000, we can apply to the insurance company to get that increase without having to do any more medical. Mm-hmm. The other thing I would do is it's called a cost of inflation. As inflation goes up, so do your insurance payments, yep. right? Your disability payment. Now it's a cost of inflation, not a cost of lifestyle. Correct. Because. <laughs> yeah. So we, I always like this. It's usually about 3%. Okay. All right. Using digital platforms in our industry is becoming more common, especially among the young folks, because it improves efficiency, prevents mistakes, and overall makes our lives as contractors easier. This is why we partnered with Connect Team, a platform built to manage, train, and communicate with your team. Connect Team's desktop version gives managers a live overview of the business to track work hours, create schedules, make sure the business meets compliance, and so much more. Employees just download the app to their mobile to clock in and out, share safety reports, and get updates all in one place, ensuring they've got what they need to perform at their best. 
Connect Team has a free plan and a 14-day free trial. Try them today by checking out the link in the show notes. So now, do we? how much does it get working with you regarding that, but also connected to critical illness? That's a good question. Crit- so, like Critical illness is not, it's something that I learned maybe 20, 25 right. years ago when you started paying attention to it. I go back to you're the young person, strong, superman yeah. and woman, yeah. and you don't think about critical illnesses. But then all of a sudden, something can happen. Yeah, so critical illness is a sickness or a disease, right? Yeah. So disabilities, you got injured, okay? They're going to compensate. They're going to pay you while you are off work. So if you are covered under WSIB, the insurer is not going to pay. Okay. Okay, because you're covered under WSIB. And WSIB, from my understanding, is about 85% of your net income. Okay. Okay. If you're not being covered, then you go to your private plan. And there's three different ways that you can set up a private plan. If, if you are an employer, you must have uh, another employee if you're going to do what's uh, called the employer pays for it. And then the payment goes to uh, the, the employee. But the way the tax deductions work, it's a, it's a tax deduction, it's a tax uh, write-off for the employer. And if the payment goes to the company, that's also not taxed, but then taxed in your hands as you receive it. Okay. You can have a personal one where you personally pay for it. So if you personally pay for it and you personally receive it, the payments that you receive for the insurance company are not taxable. It's reported as income, but not taxable. Okay. Because you're using after-tax payment to pay the insurance company, right? So they're not going to tax you again when you receive the benefit. What's the... Better option here on the table. What would you recommend? Um, I would, I would always, if you're an employer and you have at least one other employee, I would do the employer okay. payment because now the um, the company gets to write it off. The company gets to write it off, but the payment, the benefit to the employee is taxable. Yeah, right. But you want that deduction. Okay. Okay. And then I, what? Uh, here's, a, here's an interesting question. At what age should we be considering critical? Uh, it's the younger The younger you are. The, young, the okay. younger you are, the cheaper it gets. And you have that coverage on you now, just in case if something doesn't... We never know what's going to possibly happen. Yeah. So there's a greater chance of you getting a sickness or a disease before dying. And when I talk about sicknesses or disease, the insurance companies, they look at approximately 30 to 33 illnesses. And that could be anywhere from brain tumor to cancer. There's, there's like 26 different types of cancer. Um, brain, uh, I said brain, heart attack, stroke, blindness, deafness. There's a lot of different illnesses. What if you got, God forbid, you got a stroke and you can't go back to work? Yeah. That's not a disability. The disability is not going to pay that. That's where the critical illness is going to come in. Right And critical illness, what that does is it pays you a lump sum 30 days if you, after 30 days if you've survived it. Let me give you a real life case. Okay. So a client of mine, he was 33 years old. We're going back over 10 years ago. 33 years old. He wanted to get a whole life policy for uh, himself to cover uh, his income replacement needs and for his child play. He, al- he also wanted to use the life insurance as a way to get money out of his business tax-free and get it into the policy. So I sat with him and I said, that's great, 
but let's talk about critical illness insurance. He says, man, I don't need that. I'm, I'm 33 years old. I said, yeah, but now is the time to get it because there's a greater chance of you getting sick before you are dying. He says, I don't need it. I said, what if I make it a win-win for you? He says, how so? I said, we're going to select a return of premium rider. And what that means is all of the money that you put into the plan after 15 years, if you don't make a claim, the insurance company will give it all back to you tax-free. Okay, that's the return of premium. And if we set this up as a shared ownership policy where the business pays for the benefit and you personally pay for the return of premium rider, okay. Okay, if you decide to take all the money back after 15 years, not only do you get the portion that you paid, you also get the portion the company paid tax-free. So what happens after the 15 years? So you are allowed, after 10 years, you can opt to get money back. Okay. However, it's not it's the 100%. Portion. It's okay. like 50%. Okay. And then each year it goes to 60, 70, 80, 90. And after 15 years, you could actually ask the insurance company, I want all my money back. But I always say to my clients, let's just take a look. If it's 15 years later, if you're 40, you're now 55. Yeah. What is the likelihood of you getting one of these 30 or 33 illnesses or diseases, a greater chance. Yeah. So let's take a look at, is it really worth getting all the money back? Or do you want to have that 250,000 or that 500,000 death, or not, sorry, not death, but the, the benefit if you were to get sick? So this client, I proposed that to him. I said, it's, it's a win-win. You can't lose. He says, all right, give me 250,000. So the, 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 the way it works is critical illness, you select an option. I want $250,000 if I were to get one of these sicknesses. Well, doesn't the guy get a massive no. tumor on his thyroid three years later? And he goes in, it's like the size of a tennis ball. Wow. And they found, they, they did some testing and they found that it was cancerous. He survived. They had, they had to remove his thyroid. He went through the treatments. He right? went through the treatments. Yeah. Guess what? He was off for six months. Insurance paid him $250,000. To cover that six-month period? Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a payment. He, 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 he had a tumor on his thyroid, which had to be removed. Mm -hmm. After testing it, they found that it was cancerous. He did some chemo and he did some radiation. He's perfectly fine now, has a beautiful uh, neckline scar. However, um, during the six months that he was off, he, he made the application 30 days after he was diagnosed and insurance paid him $250,000. So that really helped his family. How when old was he? 33? He was, he was 33 when he bought it. He was 36 when he got diagnosed. That young. Wow. And in this, and you know, the guy couldn't stop thanking me. He's like, "Thank you so much for for making me get this." Does he still have the premium on? No. Once once they pay it out, the policy is now canceled. So now, if he tries to get another policy because of his history, would it be affecting that policy? He can't. He couldn't. He's not insurable now. He's not insurable. No. He's a high risk now. Yes. He, he the the company already paid him out, so you can't go and apply for another one. Now. Sometimes, sometimes on an exceptional basis, the insurance company might give you another critical illness policy, but they will void cancer or anything related to that. Such a 
a roulette, eh? Like it's just yes. a chance. But can you share what the premium was for him? But he's there's deciding like factors. Oh, right? we're going back ten years ago. Yeah, it's you know on two hundred and fifty thousand at thirty three years old. He's on, in a prime age time. Yeah, he's young. Like like you know they say you know what are the chances? Like if if you're like fifty five or sixty, obviously the risks of you getting one of these diseases or illnesses is, is far greater at that age. So your premium is going to be much higher again. And it also comes down to what amount do you want? I always say to my clients, God forbid you were to get cancer. Do you want to go on Ontario's waiting list No. for six months and no. you go down and you have to see these lines and just, no. just wait six months, just forget any type of treatment or, would you like a lump sum payout, 250000 500000 And you can go, say, to Germany, where they have some of the top cancer facility, treatment facilities in Germany, and just pay cash for it? What's more important to you? So it all depends on what amount you select. You can select 50000 You can select a million dollars. Obviously, the higher amount you select, the premium, the premium changes. It all comes down with what's your affordability and what do you want. Generally, people opt to go with about a $250,000 policy. I have $250,000. I bought it, God, like 15 years ago. Okay. Right? But then also when you're selecting disability, your premiums, uh, you're looking anywhere between 1% and 3% of what your annual uh, income would be. That's what your premium would be on an annual basis. Yeah. So, so if let's just hypothetically, if you were making a hundred thousand dollars and you're going to receive say sixty five percent of that, uh, so be sixty five thousand. Depending on what class you are, if you're say a two A, so you're a high risk construction worker, it could be at three percent. So you're probably looking about eighteen hundred bucks a year, or call it one hundred and fifty bucks a month. So, is one hundred and fifty dollars a month worth insuring your greatest asset? if you got injured and the likelihood of you getting injured is 400% higher. higher. It's less than buying a new tool. Right? No, it, it makes a lot of sense, John. It totally makes a lot of sense that people are not aware of it. I bet you that the majority of the industry doesn't even know to do this. And I can put return of premium rider on the disability too. You can still do that. I could put return of premium on that. So in say in what you could do too is like every eight years, you can ask for the money back and it won't cancel the policy. Now, are there policies that will benefit you and your family? Can you lump sum it together or is it by the individual? Uh, they insure the individual. They're not going to insure individual. Yeah, so there won't be a family plan of some sort. Of not for disability or critical illness. No, okay. it's based on you. Because everybody has their own unique history and that's what they have to factor that in, right? Correct. I mean, listen, uh, let's say you were in the field. I mean, you, you could be a crane operator and your wife's a stay-at-home mom. Who are we going to insure? Of course, yeah. Right? So I you're the base of premium on you. Yeah. Right? No sense, no sense in getting disability on mom. I mean, if she cuts her finger cutting up some vegetables, she could still... <laughs> yeah, I know. It makes right? a lot of sense. I wanted to ask you about, um, I mean, at what point do tradespeople or people in general start factoring in their family? Like you get a lot of conversations lately where you start getting parents start setting up bank accounts for their children. They were just born, brand yeah. new kids, right? But then they start factoring in what's it going to be like? Because before you know it, you know, like we're, we get into, you get older, years go by fast. Yeah. So all of a sudden kids grow up fast. Yeah, yeah. We get closer to our end date, right? So 
what key things should people be factoring in once you start, I guess, pulling the trigger of family situations where I've got kids now, I've got people that care about and things like that. So what, what insurances, what should we be looking at for these people, right? Good question. Uh, literally, just about two weeks ago, I had a client call me up and said, um, hey, John, I just had my second son. He was born yesterday. I want to get a policy on him. I'm like, Wow. First of all, how are you feeling? Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> that was the experience. Yeah. Right? Are you home now? Should I send flowers? Okay. Um, yes, I want to get a policy. How much? Well, here's how much I want to put in. I want to put in 250 bucks a month. Okay, so three grand a year. Yeah, great. So they're doing it on their children right away because they know in 20 years, policy's paid for. Kids in great health right? It's, it's, it, it, honestly, it was approved in, I think it was like five days. It was literally approved. The policy was approved in five days. Wow. Yeah. And I've already delivered the policy. It was that fast. So then what happens at that policy in 20 years at that point? So the policy is fully paid for. Now what happens is the dividends on the anniversary date of that policy, the dividends continue to come in. Like the client is no longer making any payments toward the policy, but the dividends keep coming in if the dividend scale doesn't change i mean right now with sun life it's six and 6.25 percent okay so that thing is just growing and growing and growing every single year now my client can borrow against that policy if they need to make a payment to a post-secondary school kid goes to university someplace like let's say they decide to go to med school in ireland all right it's gonna be 50 grand a year I've got this life insurance policy. I can borrow against it and pay for my son's education. I can pay it back whenever I want. It's there to use. It's also there uh, as a gift. You can gift it now to your child with no tox, uh, sorry, tax consequences because it's going from parent to child. Mm. And it's, it could be a gift. And all you're doing is transferring ownership. And that child now has this life insurance policy that they can use like their own personal bank for starting a business, buying a house, whatever they want to do it for, or just never touch it, and they could use it as retirement. Don't miss it on huge savings. Visit goiguide.com slash shop and use promo code TCLpodcast to get deep discounts on an iGuide system. Everyone loves swag, and I love giving it away. So if you're listening and you're interested in learning more about iGuide, shoot me an email, rjohnston at planetar.com, or a message on LinkedIn, and I'll send you free swag just for saying hello. I've got free t-shirts and toques, and I can't wait to give them away. I've also got special offers for TCL listeners, so it's worth your time to reach out. So what does a child that's brand new, still has styrofoam on them, yep. pay over the course of 20 years, that amount, that the, 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 the policy's paid out now at that point? What amount are we talking about here over that 20-year period that you, would you be paying out? So three. So this this client shows because she has another child, um, and she's doing two hundred fifty dollars a month. Plus, plus they're also doing um, the uh, education savings account with the government. We could talk about that too. Yeah. Um, so they're doing. She's now doing two hundred fifty dollars per child. So it's three thousand bucks a year, right? It's so nothing. so over so over twenty years, you put away sixty grand. But after twenty years, the policy, the cash value, is worth far greater than sixty thousand dollars. I think it's it was like almost ninety thousand bucks, and it just keeps every year. It just keeps growing and growing and growing. Now, keep in mind, again, I want to say for your listeners, 
Life insurance is not an investment. It's a really great place to hold money mm-hmm. that's going to give you bond-like returns. Instead of putting your money into the bank, like starting a bank account for them, why would you put money $250 into a separate bank account where the bank is going to pay you 0.01%? You're losing to inflation and all the bank does is now they're going to take it out and they're going to send it out into the market and rent out your money and create velocity with it and they're going to pick up 7, 8, 9% on it. So I just say, if you're going to hold money someplace, hold it where it's going to pay you a decent return and you still have access to it right what's that's what i took away like when took away a lot of stuff from the last time that we chatted right but being your own bank and educating yourself financially and being a literate like literate about the whole situation moving forward yeah. was critical man completely critical and just because you're a trace person it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be doing this like you should be factoring in all this stuff or at least having conversations about this and options on the table yeah. because you could be missing out what's the educational from the government that you mentioned? So the education savings plan by the government is if you start up, it is a registered plan. Mm -hmm. The government will give you a 20% uh, grant on whatever amount that you put in up to a maximum of $500. Okay. So what does that mean? If you put in $2,500, the government automatically gives you a 20% lift as a grant, so it's 500 bucks, so now you've got 3000 I do this for my kid too, but I don't put any more than 2500 Why? I'd be crazy enough. It's, it's a guaranteed 20% return. Now, how you have that invested is a completely different story. I don't have it invested into risky things. I have it invested into very moderate to conservative funds, right? The reason for that is I don't want to lose on it. I want to keep my fees very low. I've already gotten a 20% guaranteed lift by the government. Why would I do anything? So, and then when my child wants to access the money or use it to go to post-secondary school, when he withdraws the money, it's taxed in his hands, not mine. So if he has no income, there's virtually no tax. Yeah. You basically get to keep most of it. Right. But here's the kicker. If... If my son doesn't go to post-secondary school and after he survives the operation from taking my boot out of his ass, (laughs) I can reclaim the money, but now what happens is it goes into my RSP. I have to pay all the the 20% grants back and then I get taxed on it. Okay, I get it. So they need to go to post-secondary school, right? Or do something with, with... the, their education to access the money. The government has really very stringent rules on what you can use the money for. As long as you're just aware of it, you're educated, and then you, yeah. just, you, you point the money in that direction. But I'm not opposed to it because it's a guaranteed 20% the moment I, I put the 2500 bucks in, right? Mm. It's, that's a no-brainer. It brings up a good point, John, where it's like I, I, you want to make some recommendations regarding asset allocations on, on your buckets on what people should be considering regarding safe and risky investments. Like I, I remember in my earlier in my 20s and 30s when you started having these conversations, you started mm-hmm. being enlightened about this. There was certain percentages that you started saying, well, let me take a chance on this, see how it goes. Let me take a chance on this and then see how that goes. But then here's safe and secure. This is going to be a nice steady climb for the next period of time. What are you recommending these days based on the world's all ups and down? Like it's insane how the world is now. So I'm assuming that asset allocation has changed in the last 10 years. Oh, absolutely. Um, Well, as you know, 
I've got a book coming out yeah. uh, very soon. It's called Wealth Without Wall Street. Um, and I talk about how to create wealth without having to uh, put a money into a stock. I'm not a big fan of stock markets. However, if you're looking at safe money, I love whole life insurance. I love the cash value portion because it's guaranteed you cannot lose. Yeah. Now, anytime you want to have a financial plan, you want to have maximum financial potential, right? Maximum financial potential of any financial plan has two components, maximum benefits mm -hmm. and maximum money supply. Mm -hmm. Traditional advice, and I talk traditional advice is from the bankers and advisors working for these financial institutions. Their main focus is on maximum money supply. And if you want to test the validity of that, sit down with any advisor. You'll see where they go. You'll see the first thing that they're going to go to is what do you currently have saved and how much are you putting away? And how can I show you how to take more risk with that to achieve a higher rate of return? Because they're just focused on returns, right? But how much time do you want to spend with an advisor showing you how to take more risk in your portfolio? Because what is the true definition of risk? The true definition of risk is the probability of total loss. But Wall Street and Bay Street have marketed in such a way that you need to take high risk to get high returns. So in order to increase your chances of winning, you have to increase your chances of loss. Who wants that plan? Nobody. Nobody. They're just focused on maximum money supply. They're not focusing on the maximum benefit. Therefore, you're not getting the maximum financial potential that you should be getting. So how do you design a financial plan that gives you both? If you take a look at whole life insurance, mm -hmm. it gives you the maximum amount of benefits. Why? Because I could set a plan up that if you were to become totally disabled, the insurance company then makes your premium payments for you. Try asking the government to make your RSP contribution if oh, you became, it's not going to happen. Yeah. Try asking your financial advisors, you have a plan that if I became totally disabled that you're going to put money into my TFSA? Do they have a plan? No, they don't. So they wouldn't even offer it anyway. There's, if they no, did. there's no such thing as, oh, if I became totally disabled, then the plan becomes self-funding. That doesn't happen. Whole life insurance, I can select. It's, an, it's a rider. It's an optional rider. It's cost very minimal, like honestly, like seven bucks a month, depending on your age and how, what amount you're doing. But if you became totally disabled, the insurance company would continue making your premium payments for you until the policy is paid for in full. There's one benefit. What's another benefit? During my lifetime, I have access to this money as my own personal bank. You cannot borrow against an RSP. No. Why? It's not all yours. Yeah. It's half yours, half the government's. And you quickly learn that when it's removed. Well, yeah. You see, when you get that statement, your quarterly statement, and you look down and you see, oh, I got 200000 in my RSP. That is not all yours. Half is yours. And if you don't believe me, try dying. And you'll see what happens to it. It gets added to your income as a deemed disposition the day prior to death if you are not married. If you are married, then a Transfer. spousal rollover. Yeah. But then what happens when... She passes away. It's a deemed disposition. That thing's just going to keep going. So the government benefits from these. So 
you have access to the cash inside the policy without having to touch your own money because it's a guaranteed loan against the policy. The insurance company is going to give you their money, right? Um, I have guaranteed rates of return. I'll never have a loss. Never. Never in 200 years has a whole life insurance company ever lost. Didn't matter what happened in history. You could go back to 1929, the Great Depression, when 9,000 banks failed, not one insurance company failed. It was the insurance companies that helped bail out some of these banks. If you go back to 2008, the Great Recession, Lehman Brothers failed, Wachovia, Washington Mutual. Um, Goldman Sachs had issues. Bear Stearns had issues. They had to get bailouts by the government. government. Yeah. Not one insurance company was in trouble. Not one. AIG had problems because they were doing some funny bookkeeping. Okay. But if you take a look at whole life, not one insurance company has ever failed. Not one insurance company has ever failed not to pay out a dividend over the last 200 years. So John, like when you were last on the show, I got a lot of people reaching out to me going, how much is this legit kind of thing? And I just kept on saying, reach out to them, speak to them, yeah. do your own homework. Because I'm, I'm sure that, like a lot of our educational system, this stuff isn't really taught. And obviously, the banks don't want to teach this, and the no. government is definitely not teaching this. No. Because it doesn't, like you said, it doesn't benefit them. They don't make a penny off of it. Yeah. But the thing is, as a society, as an individual, we work hard, and we want to provide, and we want to leave a nest egg, yep. and we don't want to leave our loved ones in a worse situation than we've got here, right? Yeah. So we want to grow something, financially speaking. So we have to do our own homework and we have to find our own resources. So I was, I mean, when I first started hearing about it, I did my own just, to, and I was curious, I started making phone calls and sure enough, yeah, it was all legit. Like things were coming in play and you're like going, yeah, this is this, but we're not being told this stuff. We're not being educated this stuff. Right. So how do you, you just keep on reaching out to a person like yourself and we just start talking about this and having these conversations about what is on the table, right? Yeah. Legitimately. And again, and going back to traditional advice, they're teaching you how to accumulate accumulate, 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 but that's the wrong thing to do. You need to replace accumulate with accelerate. You need to mm -hmm. accelerate your money, not accumulate your money. Because if you continue to accumulate, banks don't accumulate. If you go into their vault, they have very little cash. No, it doesn't, yeah, I know. But they get to lend 10 times on that fractional reserve banking system, right? It's a promissory note. Like it's basically it's a promissory note. It's it's a couple it's a couple numbers they type yeah. into a computer and they create money out of thin our air. Our clients brought in all this money. We have this money. Digitally speaking, we have this money. Correct. Now we can use this money on something else that we want to invest in that we're gonna see accelerate. Right. So the reason why I talk accelerate and why accumulation theory doesn't work is because if you listen to the traditional advisor, they want you to max out your RSPs, max out your TFSA contribute to your non-registered stuff, build up this nest egg to, so that when you get to retirement, and what, what, what amount really is sufficient in retirement? A million dollars today is fuck it's all. It's nothing. It's not, a million dollars today is not going to get you through you it. You can't survive your retirement years with a million dollars. No. If you're earning, like, if just, just to have a decent lifestyle with the cost of living today, you need to be earning at least hundred dollars to $120,000 today. There's not a lot of people that are making hundred grand. Like, to be honest, why has John, uh, how, why has Toronto, Canada in particular, because we're mostly like a lot of this comes up through a Canadian perspective, yeah. right? Become so financially unattractive. You know what I mean? Like 
to be here doesn't yeah. benefit. When you're taxed more than 50% of what you yeah. make, when you have all these situations where transfer of wealth, land, properties, and the tax man um, takes so much of it, why why can't we change this here in Canada? Because obviously Canada is a great nation to be living in, but it hasn't become one financially speaking. It's It comes down to government. Um, we currently have a prime minister who doesn't understand the concept of math and doesn't understand the concept of economies of scale and doesn't know how to do a budget in if his own ideology is the books will balance themselves. Yeah, I mean, how did that work out? I mean, this is a prime minister who has spent more in the last eight years than all previous prime ministers before him combined. Combined. So there is a reason why he's not doing anything with the carbon tax. There's a reason why he's adding all these other taxes is he's gotten himself into a deep pile of shit and put this country into such debt. You have to find a way to get out of it. And the only way is raise, raise taxes, keep those tax rates going. So he's, he's mendled in, in anything that has to do with homes, real estate, let the markets do what the markets will do. What caused this inflation was his free printing of money. Yeah. That is the truth. That's and just no, a fact. It's a fact. Yeah. Okay. You cannot print free money, send it out into the system and expect that it's not going to cause inflation because all it did was devalue our money. We go to work and we trade our time for money. There's an exchange of value. Value is being created yeah. and we are being compensated for that value. But if I had a printing press that's just printing money and I put it into the system, what value got created? None. Uh, All it did was devalue our dollar. Now there's more money into the system to go out and buy things. And that's what caused inflation. Not the economies of scale, not home prices. This is, the, this is a big problem. It's our government. And this is why it's become so unattractive to come and purchase a home. You, if you earn $120,000, you can't qualify for you a won't mortgage. Qualify. Not even for a $500,000 condo. Your partner will have to be making you the need, same amount. You need two household incomes. And, and you'll still be scraping by at that point. You will not be able to go out. You will not be able to have any kind of critical disability. No. You won't be able to carry any of those things. You won't be able to plan for your children. You, so you'll have a house. Great. Wonderful, but you won't have anything else at that point. Right. Which that it, it gives you such a a raw definition of house poor today. It it just really is a scary that's why I was like, is there a way to reverse this? Like is there a way where we'll never go back to the gold standard? Get like, rid of Trudeau. Well, I mean outside <laughs> of that, that's a never we gotta get rid of this government. That, that's happening. But the thing is the government I just don't think government is gonna change dramatically to the point where they're not gonna lower taxes. Yeah. They can't. Because there, there's such a deficit. Yeah. Like, it's just absolutely stupid how... I mean, recently I read this article about Olivia Chow. She wants to change the Dundas Street name at a cost of $12 million. When you've got a city that's in debt, almost a billion dollars. Why do we want to change a street name in Toronto where you'll have to affect every single business now on that street yeah. to change their name and all of their messaging all because of a person's name represented some slavery like that makes back no sense like like honestly these politicians they get this idea in their head and for political reasons they push their agenda without even having any common sense and taking a look at i've got tents 
all around the city, we have a major homeless problem, yeah. and you'd rather change a fucking sign for twelve yeah. million dollars. No, I know. Honestly, you got to get. You, call, you a, need to get called out for this stuff because this, this is stupid a, spending. When you're running a deficit of, of a billion dollars in a city, yep. you do not operate a business contractor yep. wise. Yep. You're running a deficit of a hundred thousand dollars. Are you going out and buying a brand new truck? Are you going out and buying brand new tools? Are you? No, you're not doing that. You can't. You don't have it. You haven't. You can't borrow anymore. You can't go back and yeah. print more money to do this. So you should. So it should be a reflection of the government. But that that opens up a whole other. Contractors, it's time to empower your business with Shelta Tech implementation. Shelta is offering a free meeting to tackle your biggest pain points head on. Their goal to develop a custom company app that's built just for you, solving your pain points, streamlining your processes, making your workday smoother. Here's the scoop. There's a $15,000 digital adoption grant available and Shelta is an expert at helping you secure it. This isn't just funding. It's your stepping stone into a new era of digital efficiency. By your second meeting, you'll get a tailor-made company playbook, a software prototype designed with your input, project tracking, real-time budget management, and daily logs all integrated into a single app. It's tech that works for you, not the other way around. Shelta isn't just offering tech. They're offering transformation. Join the community of 93 subcontractors who have already stepped up their game with Shelta Tech. Two meetings, countless opportunities. Ready to make a move? Visit Shelta.app. Let's pave the way to a smarter, tech-driven future. Shelta Technology, custom tech solutions for the modern contractor. I want to talk about how we, can we restructure debt because a lot of businesses get into certain situations all of a sudden that maybe things didn't work out well and all of a sudden they try to get ahead of everything. But what are your thoughts on how to fix certain businesses when it comes to businesses that are not bringing in the finances that they used to bring in, right? So do we have good debt or do we have bad debt? Good point, good point. Right, Bad debt is where I'm spending on my credit card for discretionary consumer spending. Like that's, you're not going to finance your vacation just because I've worked really hard and I need a vacation that I'm going to throw a $5,000 charge on my credit card that I can't pay off. That's a destructive expense. I don't recommend that. It's a major bad debt. Huge. Now are we talking good debt. Good debt would be, I borrow money from a bank then I put them to my business. I'm going to generate, I'm going to make an income off that. Okay. I watched a video where someone asked Dave Ramsey. Yep. If someone offered you a million dollar loan at 0% interest rate, would you take it? And he said, no. He's like, why? I don't like debt. It's like, but it's 0%. No, I wouldn't take it. This goes to show that some of the advice that some of these guys, like a talk show host, very well-known talk show host in the U.S. is giving is completely wrong because that is how millionaires and billionaires create wealth is they borrow money, say they borrow a million dollars or $10 million at say 4% and they put it out and they buy real estate that gets them 10, 15, 20% or they put it back into their business where they get a 20% rate of return and they make the spread. It's called arbitrage. Yeah. You want to look for that arbitrage opportunity. If I can borrow at 5%, but I can make 15, my arbitrage is my spread. I'm making 10 points. Yep. That's how you create wealth. If you're going to borrow, put it into your business, 
and, and make the spread on it because that would be your investor DNA. Your investor DNA is what we know the best. If you are in construction and you're a home builder, you know that the best. You're not going to borrow $100,000 and go buy crypto. You don't know anything about it. Yeah. Stick with what you know. Stick with your investor DNA. Put it into your business. If you know that you can make 20 or 30 points inside your business, then do it. It doesn't become a risk anymore. It just becomes a smart It's a liability. Money. Yeah. It's not even a debt. It's a liability. Because if I'm buying equipment and that piece of equipment is making me money, for example, I've got clients, one of my, my best friends, um, we started a policy for him. I talked about this on my last show, um, last time I was here. Um, he started a policy almost 12 years ago and he has two now and we just converted over um, another term into a whole life and he uses these constantly to buy equipment. Why? Because when he buys equipment, A, he's not going for credit. His credit is never being pulled. Yeah. He doesn't have to uh, put his name as a guarantor so it doesn't affect his borrowing capacity on his credit bureau. It's a private loan. He uses the money, buys an excavator, buys a drill, whatever. He makes, that machine makes him money every single day and he pays it off. And he, it's rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. This is how he uses his, his whole life policy, right? But he's investing into his business. He invests into what he knows. He's making the spread. He's making the spread. That machine is making him money every day, you know? So if, if you're a business owner, take a look at what are you borrowing the money for? Don't borrow money, invest in something that you don't understand. Stick with what you know, right? Don't get yourself too deep into debt that you can't handle it. Isn't it kind of sad that, I mean, this happens in the U.S. and this happens in Canada, and I can only assume that it happens in other um, countries, how when your first week of education at a college or university post or whatever, they're giving out free credit cards like for a $5,000 limit oh my God. to people who don't have any income, but they're yeah. studying and spending money because they have to buy books and they're paying rent and all kinds of stuff. But now you're being given this credit and we know why it's done that way, right? So how do we educate ourselves not to pay attention to these opportunities like that million dollar debt of zero interest? Forget about the credit cards. Half these people are getting OSAP loans and they're using their OSAP loans to go on a vacation or buy a car. Like this is for your education and you're buying new Jordans or you're taking a vacation with your OSAP money. I know that it's part crazy. Of your like you, 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 the pro here's the problem, Manny finance is not taught in the education system for reason. Well, John D. Rockefeller was yeah. the creator of the education system, and he said, I don't want thinkers. I want workers. Yeah. And so no one is teaching financial literacy in the education system. We need to start educating our children on financial literacy. It's key. We have to teach them about money. We have to teach them about debt. Credit card debt. Listen, I don't put on my credit card if I can't pay it off at the end of the month. I want to ask you about that because I know part of your 30-minute consult is that you're asking people to show them, uh, show you their credit card statements. If you want Some to work, search, yeah. yes. So after, after our 30-minute consultation, I'm all about finding the money. Yes. Okay. Find, question, plug, plugging your financial leaks. Yeah. My, my question to you is how many people actually look at their credit card statement line by line yeah. of everything that was purchased or how many of them do the classic scroll through everything, get right to the bottom of what I owe, whether it's minimum or the full balance. That's very, society, right? Very, very few. I, I did this exercise with 
a client who uh, she just just is becoming a client. We're actually having our final um, talk tomorrow where I've, I'm presenting a plan to her. And I was able to find uh, almost over $2,500, actually so more, it was over close to three grand a month that she was spending on Amazon. It's crazy. I said to her, you know, I said, how much... How much can you afford? Man. How much? How much can you afford to start putting away? Are you putting twenty percent away? No, I'm not putting twenty percent away. Okay, let's find the money. What are you spending money on? She goes, "Well, I have this thing. I like to spend on Amazon. I'm always buying clothes." And I said, "Okay, here's an exercise. Right? I want you to send me your last three months credit card statements and your debit bill." Okay, your bank account. And now I want you to go through everything that you spent on Amazon and I want you to add it up, okay? Guess how much you spent over the last three months on Amazon? Each month? Combined, three months. Was she like over 1000 each month? or was $8,000. Over three months? Over three months. What was she buying? Like Hoodies, clothes. It was just convenience, right? Convenience. I'm bored, I'm online, let me check Amazon, let me do a search. Yeah. If you're looking for this, you're looking for that. Yeah. Here's another option. I'm getting emails now from Amazon going, you might be considering this. What's the difference between them and a drug dealer at that point when someone's looking for a fix? Yeah, you buy one thing. Is it, oh, because you bought this, other people have bought this too. Oh, let me, let me click through this. Was she shocked that she was spending that much? She was flabbergasted. She didn't know what to say. She says, I'm, I'm actually disgusted. Her response to me, she goes, I'm disgusted in myself in what I have been spending money on. And I said, and these clothes, how often are you going to wear these clothes? She goes, maybe once or twice. So now we just found $2,500, almost $2,700 a month that she could be putting toward. Now, did I use all that $2,700? No. I took, I think it was $1,500, and I left her with about $1,200 a month. Because I listen, I don't want you to live like what the way that Dave Ramsey is telling you to live on rice and beans and live through scarcity and cut your lattes and don't drink coffee every day because you need to save and buy yourself that home and pay cash and don't finance your car. Bullshit. Listen, we all need to create a um, retirement mm -hmm. fund. But enjoy the journey along you the way. Live. You want to live. Enjoy the journey, yeah. right? Don't, don't scrimp and save and live in scarcity. No, I can't have a, a latte because John said I have to put everything. No. I found 2700 Can we put 1500 of that away? Sure. Now you got 1200 to spend on Amazon. Are you okay with that? Absolutely. So it's about finding lost money, and that's what I do with clients. You'd be amazed that when I go through this exercise, when I look at your credit card statement how much I find in spending and people are just flabbergasted. They, I didn't realize I, I was spending I this amount. I challenge listeners to go to their statements and go, I want to know exactly what's being spent. I'd like look at your statement and just take a look at it. Uh, John, like you, through your experience, men and women, what are they really wasting money on these days? Like what are, are they doing those situations where they just are convenience of shopping on the online? Both sexes? Yeah, you know, you really have to define, is it a need or is it a want? Yeah. If you're going through Amazon, ask yourself before you click purchase or buy now, is this a need or is this a want? Get rid of your wants. Everybody has wants. Look at your credit card bills for the last three months, okay? And go through everything that you spent 
on Amazon or in stores and ask yourself, truly, and be honest with yourself. You didn't want. Was this something I actually needed or is this something I wanted? I've got three pairs of Nike Jordans in my closet. Did I need that extra pair at $300? No. Boom. I just found $300 that you could be putting away. Mm-hmm. Okay. You have to do this and be honest with yourself. People aren't being honest with themselves. They're, most of the time, they're classifying everything. All their wants is, I need it. I need it. No, you don't need it. You know what you need? You need to put food on the table. Yeah. There's a clear definition. You need to put these. gas in your car so you can get back and forth to work. Yes. Those are needs. Now, I know Amazon's also offering business accounts. Yep. And we should be paying attention to a business credit card or a business expense. Same thing with Amazon. We should probably be looking at opportunities where you only purchase for the business. Now you should be understanding that when you make a purchase, you know exactly, is this item going to be making me money? I definitely need it in the business yeah. and, and follow that trail of thought on that item. So then you can, you could start seeing the growth at that point where it's benefiting your business. You probably might even see that you're going to start spending less on personal, more on business, but the business is returning value because of what's growing in the business, right? Yeah, absolutely. Is that a smart move on that end? Or? Yeah, separ- separate. If, if you have a business, get yourself a business credit card. Yeah. Right? And only spend for things on the business with that business credit card. Separate the personal, right? Because that also makes the tax man a lot happier when you have to explain things if you n- ever need to explain absolutely. things. Absolutely, absolutely. Because if you're, if you're buying things for the business on the personal side, you know, CRA auditors, are they get paid to find... Uh, mistakes. Yeah. Right. They enjoy the mistakes. They enjoy the mistakes. They get get compensated. It benefits them and they get, they get bonused on what mistakes they find. So just keep everything separate. Attention contractors. Welcome to the future of construction resource management with our platform where you can easily buy, sell or rent tools, equipment and materials with fellow contractors. Say goodbye to wasted time and resources. Need that specialized equipment for a specific project? or want to earn extra income from your underused resources, this platform has you covered. With its user-friendly interface and a vast network of trusted contractors, you'll find what you need or make your resources work for you seamlessly. Join the construction community that's changing the game. Visit them online at altlaborsolutions.com and start optimizing your resources today. Alt Labor Solutions, where contractors connect and resources thrive. What other things can you recommend, John, that um, people might not know of, that they're not understanding opportunity outside of what we already discussed on both shows? Well, you know, what people really have to do is they have to take money seriously. And my my question to, to people is, what is your belief about money? What is your belief? Do you believe that the government can manage your money better than you can? No. Um, so if you're putting money into RSPs, you're going against your belief system because an RSP is a government program. We've been educated though, that the RSPs are really good and everybody should be doing it. No. And it benefits us in the end. It benefits the governments more than it does you far more. And they know that that's and why they it's know out that. there. That's why they don't promote whole life insurance because they don't make a goddamn cent on it. Why would they share that secret? But they probably, as individuals, they do it. Oh, yeah. I mean, listen, banks, if you take a look at banks in the United States, um, they own more than $200 billion of whole life insurance, and they use tier one money that Hmm. goes into whole life. They don't own $200 billion of mutual funds, Hmm. right? They buy whole life. Why? 
it's so safe. If they've got the, their tier one money, which is their, their 10% that they always have to keep on deposits, why would they keep it in their vault earning nothing? Put in the whole life, get a 6% rate of return or five guaranteed in the US, right? And then what they do is they'll buy it on executives. And when the executives die, it pays into the bank. It's the same way as the Rockefellers do it. It's the, it's the reason why the Rockefellers were able to pass on generational wealth and they're one of the richest families in the world today. Why? It's because they didn't spend their money on buying mansions like the Vanderbilts did. They didn't, they weren't spendthrifts. They created a family trust and they bought a life insurance policy on every newborn Rockefeller. And the life insurance was placed into the trust. And so when a Rockefeller needed to borrow money, they had to go to the family board and it had to be approved and they wouldn't have to pay it back. But when they die, then the insurance policy gets paid into the family trust. And this is how they're able to pass it on for generations and generations. So who do you want to follow? The Vanderbilts who are completely broke today? Or do you want to follow one of the richest families in the world that really know how to pass on generational wealth and they know how to do things on a tax efficient basis? I mean, uh, my buddy, Garrett Gunderson, wrote a book, What Would the Billionaires Do? And he talks about the difference between the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts. Mm. Um, read that book. What would the uh, uh, what would billionaires do? I open it. it. Fantastic. I want to. I, I know that there's been a lot of conversations about trust, especially on the American side. Yeah. What are the truths back and forth? Like, I mean, a lot of people are talking about how you should set up a trust, you shouldn't set up a trust. How does you? How is a trust secure? How does it work in Canadian terms? I guess yeah. in American terms. If you want to shed some light on that, that'd be great. Yeah, so the last time I was on your show, um, I had a lot of people calling me about setting up a trust. Okay. And a lot of people were saying, I want to set up a trust because, you know, I might have some property and uh, I don't want to pay tax. I don't want to pay capital gains on tax. I want to leave it to my kids. So a trust is not going to do that. No. That's a title situation. It's a title situation, right? So the couple And you should have- start now because the thing is, there's a period of time from my understanding regarding transfer of title where there is, you correct me if I'm wrong, uh, I'm trying to think of the word, um, joint, not joint. Um, there's two different types of title. Well, I always say, instead of, instead of creating a trust, which A, you have to file a tax, refer, tax return for the trust every single year, it's going to cost you several thousand dollars to set it up. You need to name a trustee. Um, also too, if you're going to try and move property into a trust, if you already own the property, you're going to create probably a capital gains tax bill because you're now transferring ownership. Plus you're going to create a land transfer tax. The other thing that's going to happen too, is if you don't sell the property, let's say you move the family cottage into a trust because you don't pay tax on it. Um, if you don't sell that cottage in 21 years, you're going to get a tax bill on it for the amount that the day you transfer it into the trust and whatever the appreciated value is 21 later, 21 years, you're going to get a bill because it's a deemed disposition every 21 years. So how do we avoid that? Yeah. It's actually really simple. Go to your lawyer and put your kids on title as joint tenancy. Joint, that's it, tenancy, yeah. Right? So in joint tenancy, not joint tenancy in common, joint tenancy. Because when your kids are on it, you could pass away now what? It, your shares transfer to them. To them. Without any tax implications. With no tax implications. Nothing, so. Exactly. So there's one way of, of, of moving property 
uh, transferring to your kids or putting your kids on title so that you don't have to pay a capital gains tax. But there's also a window where it's like, okay, if the title owners, let's say it's parents or whatever, it's in their later years of life. You can't just automatically transfer that title in their last year of life. There's a period of time, isn't there, that it has to be done within, based on, I don't know, I'm, I'm still looking into some You of should, that. I would say, just talk with a real estate lawyer okay. regarding the amount of years. Um, adding someone to title is not a big deal, right? You, you have to do it through a real estate lawyer, just adding someone onto title. But it's really critical that it's not common, it's a joint. It's right. It's joint tenancy, joint not joint tenancy. tenancy in common. Yes. Because if it's joint tenancy in common, your shares do not get passed on to them. You're going to get taxed on those shares. So speaking to the young families that are listening, because you've got children and now you start talking about putting a whole life insurance policy on your, your kids, yep. start considering this change in a title transfer as well. So then you don't ever have to deal with this 21 year tax issue that's going to come up. Correct. And the government will take what they are entitled to. Oh, they're always there for their pound of flesh. And they just know this, right? So they oh, yeah. already know all these properties that are out there that are getting these transfers and they just know there's a huge lump sum of money that's coming towards yeah. all of them. Oh yeah, especially even investment properties. If you own a bunch of investment properties and you're- Same you apply, to, applies. Put, put your kids on as a joint tenants. Now tax-wise, what is that? Well, I mean, you know, you probably might not know that, but what does that affect on the kids? But then again, you're talking about younger people that are not making that much income. So then they're in a smaller tax bracket. The property's not getting sold. You passed away, so now your shares go to them. That's so it. So the property doesn't get sold. It's so still it's not around. It's not income anymore. No, it's still around. It's a pretty smart move. Yeah. It's really easy to, to do that. Just make sure, you know, you have a good relationship with your kids. <laughs> That's the other thing, is that you have to start factoring in what's going to happen as a result of that. But, yeah, you never know that, right? Listen, estate planning is one of the, la the few things that people even want to consider because... No one wants to ever consider mortality. But if you, if you fail to plan, then plan to fail. So, yeah, that's exactly you, what's You happen. need to put your shit in order. Um, and no matter what age, if you have any assets at all, get yourself a will. And if you, if you do have a will and you haven't looked at it in the last five years, get it updated. That's a good update. Credit statement. Because, you know, um, I'm going through this right now with not one of my clients. It's a client that came to me asking for help because uh, father passed away, didn't have a will, has four investment properties. And now the court's involved. So this, this person booked a call with me and said, hey, how, how do we protect ourselves? I said, well, you're kind of shit out of luck right now because now you've gone into probate. Your father died into state, which means he had no will. So now the court, you, you left all the decision-making in the hands of the courts to decide who gets what? What do you think they're going to choose? Generally, what happens is it goes to the living spouse. And if that spouse is not there, it generally goes to the children. However, anything that goes into probate is public knowledge. You can have nephews and nieces, long-lost cousins from another country find out and say, hey, you know, Uncle Bob promised me that that property. Now we've got a problem. It can be contested. Now you got to go to trial. And now you got to go to trial. You're spending thousands of dollars. You need to you need to lawyer up and you need to fight this claim that you know your father promised this property to his favorite nephew who's over in Zimbabwe. Right? That's the problem when you die without a will. So you need to 
sit down with a lawyer. And honestly, it doesn't cost that much. There are software programs out there that you could, you could put on a napkin, honestly. Just make sure that you have witnesses sign that napkin and that will be in effect. You cannot leave, uh, write out a will to someone and leave as a beneficiary and then be the witness also. There has to be a separate witness than the beneficiary because then that could be looked at as you did this out of duress. Yeah. But just go see a lawyer. Get it done. It might cost you 2500 bucks, And at least you're being protected. You're not leaving the decision-making of your assets up to a court. Right? And another uh, piece of advice for your listeners Leave as little as you can in a will. Because anything that is in a will is going to be probated. If you ever get into that situation. If you die, yes. Because so where probate, are you putting it then? So you want, to look, you want to look for things that you can name beneficiaries. So beneficiaries would be like a TFSA. Yeah. Whole life insurance. Doesn't go through a will. Bypasses probate. Gets paid right out to the beneficiaries. Less than 30 All these days. lessons that tax never free. taught to anybody, huh? Right. You want very, very little inside a will. And then I guess the other <coughs> thing that I, I want to ask you about is um, operating businesses outside of Canada. Yeah. Can you set up businesses outside of Canada that, that operate in Canada? So you can set up a business. Like if you want to go to the U.S., you can go and set up a business. I just can't operate it unless I have a E2 visa or I have some sort of residency or a work permit, but I can open up, I can go and open up a pizzeria if I want. I can't work it, but I can open it up and hire and hire people to run it. However, any, any profit or any income that you make on that business, you also must declare in Canada. Not only will you pay uh, income to the state, the U S you're, you're also going to pay on your worldwide income because you were a resident of Canada, so you will pay worldwide income. So you can end up paying taxes twice. So it doesn't benefit you at that point. No, unless the only way the only way it can benefit you is if you renounce your residency in Ontario, Canada, not your citizenship, your residency. Because if you're no longer a resident, I can earn whatever amount of money I want in Dubai, or in the United States. To renounce a residency, you have to have a, a forwarding address someplace else? Yeah, well, you're no longer residing in Ontario or Canada, right? So, so in, order, in order to not pay tax in Canada, you have to renounce your residency. And that, you know, speak to an immigration lawyer. I'm not, I'm not giving financial advice no, no, on no, that. No, of course not. Yeah. I'm just saying... Um, if there's ways of doing it. There's ways of doing it if you don't plan on ever returning and you don't want to have a residency because... If the government does find out that you are earning income in someplace else and you didn't report it, my friend, that is tax evasion. Yeah. And that is breaking the law. There's one thing about tax avoidance, tax minimization, and tax reduction. Those are all legal. Tax evasion is not. And you need to really understand the difference. I work within the scope of tax avoidance tax minimization and tax avoid, uh, um, less than your tax. I don't work anywhere around tax, tax evasion. evasion. No, that's, that's, that's a case. But tax law. avoidance is just basically, you're just not paying 
you're setting up certain things to not pay the full amount of tax. Let's give you a perfect example. You can set up an RSP, right? Traditional advice, we're going to get back to the accumulation versus acceleration, right? Let's talk about that for a second because we kind of left it off there without finishing. Working with a traditional advisor and he gets you to accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. Let's say that magic number, let's say you're earning $100,000 a year. And the rule of thumb is when you get into retirement, you should be having, you're living off of at least 80% of that, right? To sustain, if you want, if you want to sustain the future lifestyle as your current one adjusted for inflation, you should have 80% of what you're currently earning. So if you're earning a hundred grand, then you want $80,000 in retirement Mm -hmm. after tax, right? So if you've got a million dollars and the average Canadian at 65 only has $265,000 in their retirement account, by the way. That's the average? That's the average, $265,000 at 65. Okay. How long will that 250, 265, how long is that lasting? Well, you're going to be living on rice and beans, um, and you're going to be making trips to the food bank because it's, if it's, you, you won't survive. You will not survive. So let's just get to that million dollar magic number, right? You got a million bucks in your RSPs. Great. The rule of thumb or the safe withdrawal rate is 3%. And they say you should only withdraw 3% to avoid running out of money during your lifetime. Because that's just a race that you don't want to win. True? Yeah. Okay. I got a hundred grand. I don't want to run out of money. I'm a millionaire on paper, but now I'm only taking 3%. So I'm taking 30 grand. And now I'm being taxed on that because it's sitting in my RSP, right? 30 grand a year. 30 grand a year. So I'm, I'm, I'm actually below the poverty lane where I was making a hundred grand a year. I've listened to the Dave Ramsey's. I've listened to my traditional banking advisor. And he said, put away, put away, max out your RSPs. And I've done that. I'm 65. I have a million dollars, but now I'm, I'm living on 30 grand. Okay, let's see how this works out. So now I've got 30 grand. I get taxed on it. So let's say I'm, I'm losing 10%. So now I'm at 27 grand. What happens if the markets drop 20%? My million dollars dropped to 800,000. I'm still using the safe withdrawal rate. So now I got 3% of 800. Now I just took a pay cut. I'm no longer living on 30 less tax, 27. I got to take 24,000 and I'm going to get taxed on that. If you work in the trades, maybe you're a plumber, a framer, or an electrician, you need to check out Black Ladder Workwear. Their work clothes are tough, functional, and durable, much like you might find in high-end outdoor gear, but it's designed specifically for work in the trades. They put a ton of intentional thought into their products, everything from knee pad inserts, zip-off utility pockets, and reinforced inseams. They've got it all. Visit blackladder.ca forward slash en forward slash TCL to learn more and take 15% off your order by using code TCL at the checkout. You just took a massive pay, pay decrease. That's scary, John. That's very scary. So that's why the accumulation theory doesn't work. I talk about acceleration. Let's start looking at assets that are going to produce passive income. Passive income is income that you earn while you don't have to trade time for money. I'm earning money while I sleep. How do I do that? Real estate's one of them. I could buy a piece of real estate and be collecting rental incomes from it. I'm getting paid rent each month. That's by passive income. I'm guaranteeing a future income in my retirement. I don't have to worry about no safe withdrawal rate. I don't have to worry about volatility in the markets. What's another way? Whole life insurance. 
I could set up a policy for you and I could pretty much nail it down to almost within a dollar if the uh, dividend scale remains the same and interest remains all equal, I could pretty much almost get it down to within a hundred bucks of what you will get starting at retirement guaranteed every single year to death. Now that is passive income. So whole life does that. How? Because you built up enough cash value that when you go to the bank, you borrow against it. The bank gives you a line of credit and now you've got this untaxable income for the rest of your life. That's tax avoidance. And perfectly legal. Perfectly legal. That's just education. Right. Now, rental income from real estate. You have to declare that, however. Yeah. I, have, I have expenses. I could write down appreciation. There's a straight line, there's, there's straight line depreciation that you can write off on buildings. There's improvements to the building, property improvements. I have, uh, say, mortgage interest. There's a lot of expenses that I can write down on my real estate. And then the income left over from that is what I pay tax on. So now I'm tax minimization. Mm -hmm. Right? Play within the framework. You, the banks are not going to teach you these types of strategies. Does it benefit you, John, um, if you have a rental property to make it a part of a business instead of personal? I would say put it inside a hold co. Several reasons why you want to create a holding company to put your real estate in. Number one, it gives you a, a, a layer of protection from your personal assets to the real estate assets, right? So what is the basic difference between a hold co and trusts? They're similar, but, but they're different? Well, a hold co is not going to be a deemed disposition in 21 years. I'm not going to get a tax bill on it. Okay. So you can move things into a holding company. Yes. But I suggest if you're going to go up and purchase real estate as an investment, immediately set it inside your hold co from day one. Because if it's in your personal name and then you transfer to a whole co, you could have tax implications. You could trigger some you're capital gains. You're going to trigger gains. land transfer, possible. Possibly. Okay. Right? So, because you're transferring ownership. Again, anytime you transfer ownership, you could have a taxable gain. So, put it immediately into a whole co. Now, most banks, most banks will not allow you to have the mortgage in the whole co, they'll allow title being the whole co, but they'll want a personal guarantee if you have a mortgage on it. Some Schedule B banks will allow you, and I just went through this with a client of mine. He's got several properties. He says, listen, I, I need to make sure that I have this, this new property. Uh, it was a pre-construction, and he had to put inside his whole co because he didn't want it personally. It's going to affect his boring capacity in the future. Putting inside a whole co doesn't affect his personal boring capacity. Most Schedule A lenders, like, you know, the big six, they won't allow you to have it inside a whole co and then the mortgage be in the whole co. You might be allowed to hold title in the whole co, but any mortgage will be qualified under you personally, so it does affect your borrowing capacity. However, the ownership is inside the whole co. You could go to a Schedule B bank, which we call them B lenders, yeah. and they will allow you to not only own title inside the holding company, but they'll allow the mortgage payment to be registered at the holding company. So it won't affect your personal borrowing capacity. And a holding company is just another corporation. It's a corporation. You're just setting up a corporation. Right. But it's a layer of protection from your personal assets. If you get personally sued, they can't go after 
the assets inside the holding company because you're not the owner. What can't you put inside of a holding company? Is there anything you can't regarding investment wise? A property, a business? Um, a lot of my business owners have coal hold co's okay. and they, they have the hold co's owning the operating shares so that anytime they have retained earnings from the operating company, they move it up into the hold co on a tax free basis. And then we move that money from a hold co into a corporately owned life insurance policy tax free. So the hold co can own a whole insurance. Yes. That's how we, that's how we set it up. We never, we never set it up where the operating company owns the life insurance for several reasons. Number one, if you get sued, they can go, they could, they, the cash value is up for grabs. It's an asset, right? Number two, what if at some point in time you decide that you want to sell the operating company? If the whole, if the operating company owns the whole life and you may have a few hundred thousand, maybe million dollars in it, you need to unwind it. If you don't want that policy to go with the sale, it's going to be a really difficult time and very messy to unwind the policy from the operating company. That's why I always directly put it right into the holding company because operating company, you move your retained earnings up and also for all your listeners out there, especially if you're in the construction business, any assets, any tools or machinery that you don't have any liens against, if you own them outright, you should be putting those into a holding company because you're liable at any time to be sued. Protective. And your assets inside a holding company, it screens you. It protects you from creditors getting access to that. So how does it, I'm just trying to figure out, the holding company, you're the principal shareholder, right? Correct. So how is it that it's almost like you're this person staring at your holding company, but anybody that wants to come after you can't because everything that you have is inside the holding company. Correct. Correct, right? Yep. But we all are aware that this person is the one that owns this company, but they can't touch you because you have everything in the holding company. Well, normally what happens is creditors will go after and sue the operating company. Okay. But the operating company is owned by the Holco. Holco owns all the shares, right? So I own, I'm a shareholder of the Holco. I own both. Actually, the holding company owns the operating company. Right? You're, you're protecting yourself from creditors, but you're also moving money out of the operating company into a holding company, and uh, you're just protecting your assets. And especially when it comes to retained earnings, you're able to get that money out on a tax-efficient basis. Because if you didn't have a holding company, how are you going to get that money out of your operating company on a tax-efficient basis? Yeah. The only way to do it is you got to buy a life insurance policy. Now the, the operating company owns it. You don't want the operating company to own it. You want the holding company to own it. But to move money from your operating company to the whole co without triggering a tax bill, the holding company must own the shares of the operating company. And the operating company is also another corporation. Correct. You look at all the, I mean, look at Walmart, look at Costco, all these. They're all set up that way. They're all set up. They have whole co's. Not one of them you're going to go after and get anything from. They're all owned by holding companies. And the small mom and pop construction business can set up the same exact way. Absolutely. 
to protect their assets that they've grown yeah. over their course of their career. Absolutely. And they should be doing this. 100%. If you have any assets, you should be set up this way. I want to end the show just, I know that last time you shared your amounts regarding what people should be looking at regarding expenses, living expenses and savings and everything like that. Yeah. But I also want you to expand on that regarding emergency funding because we all get into certain situations and we're not better prepared. And we're hearing on the news right now that nobody has the six months of mortgages based on what the interest rates have been coming up to, killing Canadians basically financially. How do you look at emergency funds tied to what your money's coming in? Because you make $100, you should not be spending $100. I have a 50-30-20 rule. Yeah. My 50-30-20 rule is... 20% you should automatically pay yourself first. That goes into your savings and your future lifestyle. Future lifestyle is your retirement. 20% off the top. Learn to live off 80%. Doesn't matter what age you are in your life? Doesn't matter. Okay. Pay yourself first and you'll never be broke. Okay. Okay. Number one. Number two, 50% of your money should be going to your fixed expenses. And if it's not 50%, you want to look at areas that you can cut and try and get your fixed expenses down to 50%. Make it 50%. Make it 50%. And 30% is your lifestyle. Enjoy the journey along the way. Don't eat rice and beans. Enjoy. Go have that latte. But don't create expenses where it's exceeding 30% of your lifestyle money. If you want to go on vacation and you don't have the money, don't put it on your credit card if you can't pay it off. It is a destructive expense. Create a separate fund and don't eat, don't eat into your 20%. Take it from your lifestyle. Say, okay, I got 30% to spend on my lifestyle this month. I want to go on vacation. How much is it going to cost me? I need a plan for it. I'm going to take 10%. I'm going to take 15% of my lifestyle money and I'm going to put this away for vacation when it comes time. Now I'm going to put on my credit card because I got the money to pay it off right away. So plan for it. Rather than you're not going yes. out in January, go out in March, go out in April because that's when you plan for it. Absolutely. Financially. You don't want to carry that burden. And when it comes to your emergency expenses, what I love about, what I do love about whole life insurance is from day one, the way I set these policies up, permanent cash value life insurance gives you cash value from day one. So on a very minimum, let's just say you're putting $1,000 a month in. At the end of the first year, you'll have about six or $7,000 of cash value. If your fixed expenses are six or $7,000 a month, you can put some cash, put some cash into a bank, but also look at your whole life value, your whole life cash value yeah. as your safe money. Because again, if you're going to put money someplace, do you want to hold it in a bank account earning you 0.01% or do you want to have it someplace that is safe but still get bond-like returns? I'm going to put my money over here because I know I have access to it at any time. It, all it takes is a phone call. Just to start ball rolling. Absolutely. Thanks so much, John. Always a pleasure. I'm it's, sure we'll get you back on the show and we'll talk more stuff. Uh, you want to share your deets? I don't have your deets on with me, but you want to share it because you, uh, you have your own podcast as well. I do, yes, thanks. I have my own podcast. And it's the book's co coming out. The book, yeah. So I actually just uh, went through and selected uh, my design cover yesterday. Nice. So I've, I've, signed, up on the f I've signed off on the final manuscript. Uh, so now the final book cover has been out. I'm going to start promoting that. Shelf date? Plan. Shelf day pushing for March. March, okay. And sorry, so the podcast again, Wealth Easy. Wealth Easy. Find e it anywhere. Yeah, E-A-Z-Y. I'm on Spotify. I am on all the platforms. You can find me on YouTube. Under on your YouTube though, it's under John Durbano. Okay. You could watch it live. 
Um, Instagram is Johnny Durbano. Yep. Same with TikTok and same with Facebook. That's it, man. And you can find my bio. Click a call with me. Awesome, John. Appreciate it, man. Thanks and so much for your time. It's always been great. Always great been great seeing to see you. you. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas as well, too. Have All a great holiday. Yeah, and uh, hopefully you get some downtime and a little bit break. I do plan on taking off uh, down to Florida for Good. New Year's and getting Good. a little bit of rest. And uh, final words on what you think 2024 is going to be like? 2024, I see interest rates being cut uh, down to probably from the bank overnight lending rate of five to probably down to four. Uh, Benjamin Tal said he sees it. By 2025 being down to 3%, I think once they do start cutting rates, um, you're going to start to see the housing market come back again because, you know, people are going to see the rates being cut. They're going to feel like, you know, it's called FOMO, fear of missing yeah. out. They're yeah. going to start getting back out there and, and purchasing homes again because interest rates are coming down. I see, I'm seeing the five-year fixed rates are coming down. Uh, they're no longer in the sevens. They're actually down into the high fives. Okay. which is really good to see. I'm even seeing some insured rates down into the high fours now, right? Wow. 499, 489 on insured mortgages. So I am seeing that, right? So um, it's going to be a good year. I hope so. I think yeah. 2023 was, uh, it was, it was very slow and I think it hurt a lot of people and I'm, yeah. I'm just really concerned if they don't, if they don't cut the interest rates, a lot of people's mortgages are renewing in, Starting in you know 2025, 2026, I think a lot of people are going to be losing their homes. Uh, they, they have to do something. Yeah. Right? They need to do something. Other than uh, the circus fiasco that's going on currently right now. Yeah. It's called <laughs> narcissism. Another. It's called uh, entitlement. That's another show we can spend yeah, hours another, talking about. Whatever. And the show might get canceled <laughs> at that point. But no, I don't want to do that. So, John, thank you so much, man. Welcome back. And Pleasure I'll get you back always. on the show anytime, man. Amazing. Thank you, Manny. Thanks. Righty, Angelina.